the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Sam Maupin Engineering. And later in the program today, we'll hear from Jack Eason, author of The Loneliness Solution, Finding Meaningful Connection in a Disconnected World. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, of course, we are in a pre-election season, primaries taking place all across the country. But Oregon voters are going to have the opportunity to decide on Measure 114 on November 8th, which would require anyone buying a gun to apply for a permit first. The measure would require anyone applying for the, the permit to pay a fee to submit a photo ID, be fingerprinted, complete an approved safety training, pass a criminal background check and not be prohibited from possessing firearms. Oregon will vote on one of the strictest gun laws in the nation this November. Law enforcement would be able to deny a permit to anyone likely to be a danger to themselves. Uh, This denial would be appealable. Uh, The law would also prohibit the manufacture, purchase or possession of ammunition magazines capable of holding more than 10 rounds. Current Oregon law requires a background check before the sale or transfer of a firearm, which would remain in place if Measure 114 fails. But that will be on the ballot here in the state of Oregon. Again, one of the strictest gun laws in the nation. Might want to check that out a bit more. Well, Congress held its first hearing on Wednesday. They were investigating whether gain-of-function research financed by U.S. taxpayers could have led to the spread of COVID-19. Now, as you might know, Senator Rand Paul, a Republican out of Kentucky, and the good doctor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, have gone back and forth on this question. This was the first hearing addressing this in Congress. Senator uh, Paul, he chaired the hearing held by the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Subcommittees on Emerging Threats and Spending Oversights. Gain-of-function research has the, the potential to unleash global pandemic that threatens the lives of millions Paul, the ranking member of the uh, the uh, subcommittee, said, yet this is the first time the issue has been discussed in a com- uh, congressional committee. Well, Paul acted as chairman since no Democrats attended the hearing. Senator Maggie Hassan, a Democrat from New Hampshire, is the subcommittee chairwoman, and her name was on the hearing schedule. The term gain of function, as you may know, describes a risky process of making a pathogen more dangerous or more contagious for the purpose of studying a response. Of course, that could be perverted uh, in that the uh, gain of function could produce something that could be weaponized. Well, in May of 2021, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said the United States never funded gain of function projects at China's Wuhan Institute of Virology. However, emails from the good doctor and other federal public health officials show that Fauci's agency did, in fact, fund research that involved making a virus more transmittable from animals to human. Now, as previously reported, the U.S. government in 2014 to 2019 gave almost $600,000 to the nonprofit EcoHealth Alliance, 
which in turn used that money to pay for coronavirus research at the Wuhan lab. The National Institutes of Health, the parent agency to Fauci's um, uh, agency, sent a letter to EcoHealth Alliance in July of 2020 asking about its relationship with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. NIH also suspended the nonprofit's grant pending answers to several questions. I'm sure each member of this committee, as well as the full Senate, can agree that we need stronger government oversight on how our tax dollars are being spent, how they're being allocated, used to experiment with possible fatal disease. Paul, again, the the, uh, chair of the committee, said on Wednesday during the hearing. Some of the key takeaways, did Fauci lie? Well, Senator Josh Hawley, the Republican from Missouri, read a statement from Dr. Um, Richard Ebright. He's a laboratory director of the Waxman Institute of Microbiology at Rutgers University, in which he said the National Institutes of Health officials, including Fauci, lied to Congress, lied to the press and lied to the public knowingly, willingly and brazenly, end quote. Holly read another statement in which um, Ebright uh, called Fauci's claim that the NIH did not support gain of function research untruthful. Ebright told uh, Hawley, I stand by my statement. The statements made on repeated occasions to the public, the press and to policymakers by the NIAID director, Dr. Fauci, have been untruthful, Ebright said. I do not understand why these statements are being made because they are demonstrably false. For his part, Fauci consistently has said he did not lie to Congress. Another takeaway, deliberately unleashing to kill millions that's the question being asked of the Wuhan lab and the Chinese oversight. Kevin Esvelt, assistant professor of media arts and sciences at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Media Lab, said government officials have not considered the potential national security threat of gain of function research. The problem is that we are so used to thinking of pandemics as a health and safety issue that we've missed the national security implications of identifying viruses that could be deliberately unleashed to kill millions of people. We talked about this uh, just a week ago on the uh, politically incorrect guide to pandemics. He said that when a disease breaks out, scientists often don't have to wait to begin to study it, in part because gain of function research allows immediate study. From a biomedical perspective, that is a triumph, particularly because it only costs a few thousand dollars and the price is plummeting. Uh, But from a security perspective, that means that thousands of researchers could gain access to a novel pandemic agent as soon as it was identified as such. Now, there are two other takeaways we'll share with you in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about the first hearing in uh, uh, in Congress, uh, the Senate panel hearing on gain of function research and COVID-19. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the second hour, we'll hear from Jack Eason, author of The Loneliness Solution, Finding Meaningful Connection in a Disconnected World. We've been talking about takeaways from the Senate panel hearing on gain of function. They held their first hearing yesterday investigating whether gain of function research financed by U.S. taxpayers could have led to the spread of COVID-19. Senator Rand Paul chaired the hearing. It was held by the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Spending Oversight. Another of the uh, takeaways was the official line from the communist Chinese government is that COVID-19 sprung from a wet market in Wuhan and spread throughout the country. 
A wet market is a term for an open-air, open, unhygienic market that sells fresh meat, fish, and produce. I've been in those markets. Well, Dr. Stephen Kay, who's a CEO of Otessa Therapeutics, Inc., told the panel, and again, this is the Senate panel, that uh, that scenario is highly unlikely based on his research. There's no uh, dispositive evidence that pandemics begin at a spillover of a natural virus in the market. All evidence is consistent with a laboratory-acquired infection. He also uh, said that he thinks release of the virus was accidental and not deliberate. That's heartening. He said he understands the conclusion is not widely held, but he said he would state that under oath and would debate other scientists. Uh, Quoting the doctor, the virus has three genomic regions that have the signature of a, a synthetic biology, that is gain of function research. He said in his opening statement, one region has features of the two types of forbidden gain of function research that are associated with bioweapons development, asymptomatic transmission and immune system evasion, end quote. Well, later in the hearing, he was asked whether he was concerned about China's continuing to do gain of function research. And he said, again, quoting, in December of 2019, they were doing synthetic biology on a cloning vector of the Nipah virus, which is 60% lethal. We just experienced a 1% lethal virus. My estimate is that could set us back a millennium. The Black Plague was a 20% lethal event, and it was a 250-year event that civiliz- for civilization to return. So very serious if his analysis is correct. And uh, finally, one of the takeaways, we shouldn't be doing this at all. That's a quote from Uh, One expert, Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, asked the experts if they agreed with these questions about gain-of-function research. There's certainly no benefit that overrides the risk. We shouldn't be doing this at all, with a question mark. The responses varied. One said, my my analysis rather, is that gain-of-function research hasn't contributed to the response to this pandemic. Another uh, was less certain, but noted that risks are ultimately greater. For balancing the potential benefits of prevention against the risk of accidents, it can go either way, depending on the numbers you use, he said. When you add the misuse case, that is what blows it out of the water. However, uh, the final expert said gain-of-function research of known diseases can be beneficial. I believe that enhancing the oversight of the research is the more effective and more prudent strategy than simply banning it. So, uh, again, some of the takeaways from this first ever hearing on gain of function and the covid pandemic. Meanwhile, the Biden administration declared the current outbreak of monkeypox a public health emergency on Thursday after three states had declared the disease an emergency there. The Department of Health and Human Services made the announcement during a briefing. California and Illinois both declared states of emergency on Monday in a bid to increase vaccination efforts. California, uh, California rather, currently has 826 cases, Illinois 547, according to the CDC. Now, is that a public health emergency with numbers that low relative to the overall population? Uh, question not uh, specifically addressed. New York, which has 1,666 confirmed cases, declared a state of emergency on Friday. So I'm not sure what of the math uh, formulation that would determine a state of emergency with numbers relatively low. American basketball star Brittany Griner was sentenced to nine years in a penal colony by a Moscow court today after she was convicted of drug smuggling, concluding a multi-month trial that served as another stage for the geopolitical tug-of-war between Russia and the United States. Her punishment is a slight reduction from the nine 
and a half year sentence. Prosecutors said they were seeking earlier. Uh, Griner's sentence doesn't necessarily preclude a prison swap, but or rather preclude, which the Biden administration had been negotiating with the Kremlin in order to secure her and another detainee's release. The State Department claims Griner was wrongfully detained. Well, in February, Russian officials arrested the WNBA basketball star at a Moscow airport and took her into custody on cannabis possession charges, accusing her of trying to smuggle less than one gram of cannabis oil which is illegal in the country, into her suitcase. She insisted she never used marijuana in Russia, although she admitted to accidentally packing vape cartridges with cannabis oil in her luggage. Now, I don't know who her manager is, but that that should have been flagged before leaving the country and entering into a country like uh, Russia. But defense lawyer Maria Blagovolina, Close enough, argued that Griner had no intention to consume marijuana on Russian soil. Her attorney claimed she had no knowledge of the severity of Russian penalties for the drug, which she uses medically in her home state of Arizona with a doctor's prescription. After she was detained in February, she was tested for drugs and none were detected in her system, according to her lawyer. Well, Griner's conviction could have resulted in a sentence of up to 10 years in prison, although Nine years isn't much short of that. She was unlikely to be acquitted given the uh, rarity in which Russian courts returned such a verdict. The WNBA player pled guilty to drug charges last month in an effort to take some accountability and to secure a more lenient sentence if she is found guilty, which, of course, today she was. Uh, Greiner has assumed that she uh, um, assured that she never meant to flout or disrespect Russian law. That was irrelevant unless you consider uh, six months off of a 10-year sentence as leniency. That's why I pleaded guilty to my charges. I understand everything that has been said against me and the charges against me, but I had no intention to break Russian law, she said Thursday. I want the court to understand that it was an honest mistake that I made while rushing and in uh, stress trying to recover post-COVID and just trying to get back to my team. Well, Considering the nature of her case, the insignificant amount of the substance and uh, Griner's personality and history of positive contributions to global and Russian sport, the defense hopes that the plea will be considered by the court as a mitigating factor and there will be no severe sentence, her legal team said last night. In response, she has been sentenced to nine years in a Russian penal colony. And as mentioned before, that does not preclude that she could, in fact, um, be the subject of a prisoner swap. There's been a third name added to that possibility on the U.S. side and a second name on the Russian side of someone who is in custody in Germany uh, over which the United States has no authority. Well, a New York Times guest essay is uh, taking heat for its insistence that weird vibes in the economy are setting the stage for a recession as economists and consumers alike say the recession has already arrived. The vibes in the economy are weird. That weirdness has real effects. That's what um, Kyla Scanlon wrote on Thursday. Scanlon uh, claimed that the U.S. economy is less focused on reality and more focused on interpretations of reality, including how consumers react in response to talks of economic decline. So it's this sort of ethereal thing that's going on out there in the weird metaverse perhaps it's not really happening when the grocer rings up the total bill and you have one bag of groceries and it costs a hundred dollars 
Well, Scanlon claimed the U.S. economy is less focused on reality and more focused on interpretations. When policy is more focused on indicators that might not fully reflect reality and not on the silly and messy people whom the policy is meant to serve, we enter dangerous territory, she wrote. Huh? There's no recession yet. Well, yeah, there is. Right now we are in a vibe session of sorts. I hope you take some consolation that we are in a vibe session. I'm not sure what the definition is. Two consecutive quarters where there's contraction. We know what a recession's definition is, or at least what it used to be. But a vibe session, I'm not altogether sure. A period of declining expectations that people are feeling based on both real world worries and past experiences. It's a state of mind, apparently, the vibe session. I'm going to mention that the next time I'm charged exorbitant prices for things I used to pay significantly less for. You know what? I'm only going to pay you what I used to pay because you're just in the middle of a vibe session, a period of declining expectations that we all have and a feeling based on the real world worries and past experiences. So here's your $5 for that $50 worth of groceries. Have a good day. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis announced today the suspension of a rogue Hillsborough County state attorney, Andrew Warren. He pledged not to enforce a number of state laws, including a 15-week abortion ban and prohibitions on sex changes for minors. The governor said today we are suspending state attorney Andrew Warren effective immediately. Well, Warren was one of 83 prosecutors nationwide who, in the wake of the Supreme Court reversal of Roe, signed a letter and they promised not to prosecute those who perform, abet or seek abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancies. This 15 week ban is an unconstitutional law. The legislature is hoping courts ignore the Florida Constitution, but I'm upholding the law and protecting the fundamental rights of all Floridians, Warren said in a statement. Uh, At the time, we are not going to allow this pathogen of ignoring the law get a foothold here in the state of Florida, the governor said in response. We're going to make sure our laws are enforced and that no individual prosecutor puts themselves above the law. To take the position that you have veto power over the laws of this state is untenable, end quote. Well, the DeSantis administration has argued that the governor has the authority to suspend a state officer under Article 6, Section 7 of the Florida Constitution, according to a press release. Uh, Susan Lopez has been appointed as interim state attorney during the period of suspension. By that provision, the governor can suspend from office a county officer for malfeasance, uh, misfeasance, neglect of duty, drunkenness, incompetence, permanent inability to perform official duties or commission of a felony and may fill the office by appointment for the period of suspension, end quote. At any time before removal, the governor may reinstate the suspended officer. Well, the Florida Senate then uh, must sit in judgment of the merits of that suspension. And after hearing the case for which there is a special process, The Senate can remove from office or reinstate the suspended official. Well, Governor DeSantis was defiant about the decision, noting that of some of the other problematic prosecutors in the state, Warren was the only one signing letters basically saying, well, to 
Hades with the people of Florida. Warren was the only uh, signee of the joint statement from elected prosecutors from Florida. He has touted himself as a criminal justice reformer seeking to end tough on crime policies. Well, as for Warren's vow to flout child gender transition restrictions, the governor pointed out the absurdity of allowing children to undergo surgeries and hormone treatment that will permanently alter their bodies when those children can't legally get tattooed. We'll continue to follow that story and the process in the state of Florida to determine if that uh, suspension will hold. Meanwhile, George Soros, the billionaire philanthropist and um, bet noir of conservatives has written a column for the Wall Street Journal defending his donations to liberal prosecutors who are releasing criminals on low or no bail, resulting in their frequent commission of new crimes. Well, he claims in the piece uh, a choice between public safety and justice is a false one and that they reinforce each other. He can pontificate on the issue because he likely has paid security protection. Well, he uh, his proposal for reducing crime and reforming the criminal justice system has been tried before. He makes the ludicrous claim that there is no connection between the election of reform minded prosecutors and local crime rates. In fact, violent crime in recent years has generally been increasing more quickly in jurisdictions without reform minded prosecutors. End quote. Well, in fact, violent and other crimes have been increasing in cities and states run by mayors and prosecutors under the same philosophy, he touts, some of whom are facing recall elections. According to the WorldPopulationReview.com, Democrats run 11 of the deadliest 15 American cities, not all, but 11 of the 15. Like many other progressives, Soros blames racism for the number of black men arrested for violent and nonviolent crimes. Yet the latest Department of Justice statistics reveal that for blacks, black victims of violent crime, 70.3% of offenders are fellow blacks, while 10.6% of offenders are white. Is black on black crime the result of racism? Well, this is not breaking news as uh, the trend has been known for years. If liberal solutions to violent crime worked, would that uh, not have been known by now? Well, the answer would be yes, it would have. Well, the main causes of rising crime, in addition to progressive prosecutors funded by Soros, are moral and spiritual. A sense of entitlement and envy of the successful, as well as the absence of fathers in the home and the loss of a shared moral and value system have all contributed to rising crime. Consider the rampant looting of high-end stores and pharmacies one sees regularly on television news. No racial group has suffered more from the violent crime as victims than African-Americans. Several prominent black voices have correctly diagnosed the crime problem, among them the former NAACP leader, uh, Kwesi Mfume, writer uh, Thomas Sowell and Wall Street Journal columnist Jason Riley. When asked by Larry Elder, which posed the bigger threat to black communities, white racism or absent fathers, Mfume, the former lawmaker, said the absence of black fathers. Thomas Sowell agrees the black family, which had survived centuries of slavery and discrimination, began rapidly disintegrating in the liberal welfare state that subsidized unwed pregnancy and changed welfare from an emergency rescue to a way of life. Writing on the 50th anniversary of a report by then Assistant Labor Secretary, later Senator uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan on the state of the black family, Riley noted, History has proved that Moynihan was onto something. When the report was released, about 25% of black children and 5% of white children lived in a household headed by a single mother. During the next 20 years, the black percentage would double and the racial gap would widen. Today, more than 70% of all black births are unmarried women, twice the white percentage. And that's of those uh, who are not victim of the genocide of blacks in uh, with abortion. 
It's an editorial note. While no prosecutor can rebuild the family structure, they can better protect the public by enforcing laws and tightening the bail structure, especially for violent offenders. The revival of a family structure is up to the religious community, the prison programs that seek to spiritually transform criminals so that they're less likely to commit new crimes when released and to hold a family intact. Well, the George Soros approach makes it more likely offenders and offenses will increase. Perhaps you should speak with crime victims to learn what they think about the revolving door that's become too much a part of the criminal justice system. These are inconvenient and uncomfortable truths, but they are, in fact, facts for those who are willing to embrace them. Well, there's a bill in Congress that's targeting women receiving resources and support from pregnancy resource centers. Um, this is a quote from uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom, the senior counsel, Denise Burke, regarding the U.S. Senate's consideration of legislation. And I believe that may be or may have been taken up earlier today. Uh, legislation that targets women who receive resources and invaluable support from thousands of pregnancy resource centers all across the country. And I might remind the listener that these re- these uh, pregnancy resource centers receive absolutely no public money. They're not profiting uh, from the services they provide. While we celebrate the U.S. Supreme Court's recent ruling that there are important interests in protecting unborn life, some lawmakers are actually working to prevent women facing unplanned, uh, unplanned pregnancies from receiving the resources and life-saving support they need. In a reckless attempt to Uh, incapacitate the life-affirming work of thousands of pregnancy care centers across the country. These lawmakers are pushing legislation that would force these centers to comply with government-approved speech or face punishment. The Supreme Court has already made it abundantly clear in the case ADF attorneys won on behalf of pregnancy care centers that the government cannot target certain speakers because it's uh, it doesn't like the particular viewpoint. We will continue to defend pregnancy care centers and their con- their constituency um, and the fact that they have a constitutionally protected freedom against such hostile attacks by government officials and pro-abortion politicians. I know this firsthand. I'm familiar with pregnancy resource centers in both the states of Oregon and Washington. I've supported them financially. I've gone to the facilities. I've spoken with women who have benefited from their services. Uh, I know quite well the work that they are doing and uh, wholeheartedly support the work that they are doing. And they certainly need the encouragement and the support of the rest of the broader community that recognizes not only the tremendous value of what they provide, but the growing need for the services they offer free of charge to women and families in our communities. Well, with precision missile strikes, China ramped up its military drills in the Taiwan Strait following Speaker Pelosi's visit. And say a dairy, says a dairy farmer, climate change proposals are putting the American food supply at risk. Be warned. In fact, we're seeing in Canada and uh, Sri Lanka and other places where uh, there have been uprising for that uprisings for that very reason. Worrisome warning. China could invade Taiwan before the 2024 U.S. presidential election, according to a former senior official. Making a conspicuous U-turn, authorities walked back a key claim about Paul Pelosi's DUI arrest. Napa County, California prosecutors walked back a boilerplate drug allegation in the DUI complaint against the speaker's husband on Wednesday after his arraignment on a pair of misdemeanor charges in a crash that wrecked two vehicles and injured the other driver. 
The criminal complaint obtained uh, alleged that Pelosi injured the other driver while under the influence of an alcoholic beverage and a drug and under their combined influence. But prosecutors walking that back have confirmed that they are alleging he drove under the influence of alcohol on May the 28th, not that he had a drug in his system, as indicated in the document. Pelosi's attorney said, I believe that the drug reference is part of the statutory boilerplate language in the complaint. To make that clear, Paul Pelosi did not have a drug in his system at the time of his arrest. Only alcohol was cited. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Jack Eason, The Loneliness Solution, Finding Meaningful connected Connection in a Disconnected World. Second hour of today's program. Well, CNN has experienced a ratings plummet and profits slump, according to the most recent report. L.A.'s newest nuisance, the Los Angeles residents are outraged by constant bridge closures as police struggle to contain viral antics, as they refer to them. In bogus threat, a security guard who worked Chicago's Lollapalooza Music Festival last weekend is accused of making fake mass shooting threats to get out of work early. Jaina Williams, 18, allegedly sent her supervisor an anonymous message Friday afternoon that said mass shooting at 4 p.m. location Lollapalooza. We have 150 targets, end quote. Well, the supervisor quickly contacted their supervisors and the Chicago police. The FBI was notified. She allegedly admitted to faking the threats because, well, she wanted to leave work early, prosecutor said. And she was arrested for felony, making a false terrorism threat. Not a good idea. Coast Guard, it's a birthday. On the 4th of August, 1790, the U.S. Coast Guard was created by Congress, which authorized Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton to build a small fleet of tin cutters to protect the coast. Well, as for Coast Guard marks its birthday and continues to serve a critical role under the Department of Homeland Security, we offer our thanks for a job well done. Happy birthday and semper paratus to the U.S. Coast Guard. A West Virginia judge ruled trans surgeries can be covered by Medicaid. The Washington Times report that the federal judge ruled this week that the state of West Virginia must allow transgender patients covered by Medicaid to receive gender transforming surgeries. U.S. District Judge Robert Chambers for the Southern District of West Virginia said it was discriminatory for the state to ban such procedures from Medicaid recipients while allowing others uh, who do not have a gender dysphoria diagnosis to get the same procedures. One example being a mastectomy. Interesting, in the United States, we're ramping up. In the UK, they are shutting down the procedure altogether, saying it's dangerous and not in the best interest of children. Joe Manchin and Susan Collins, uh, bipartisan, um, have uh, authorized a bill to reform the electoral count. Senator Joe Manchin, the Democrat, on Wednesday touted a bipartisan bill introduced by Susan Collins, the Republican, to reform the Electoral Count Act that he said would fix a law's bad actors that they have manipulated for their benefit. The act was passed in 1887 as an answer to the disputed 1876 election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden, which included competing slates of electors from multiple states. 
So there's nothing new under the sun. Close election in 1880 and 1884. Both Republicans and Democrats have used provisions in the act, including during four of the last six presidential elections for what Collins said were frivolous objections. Now, lawmakers hope that by reforming the act, they can help prevent another January 6th, 2021 from happening. Well, the first bill, the Electoral Count Reform and Presidential Transition Improvement Act, who would raise the threshold for lawmakers to raise objections to state electors. Under the current law, one House member and one senator are needed to raise an objection. In their um, proposal, one-fifth of the House and the Senate would be needed to object. The second bill would double the penalty under federal law for individuals who threaten or intimidate election officials, poll watchers, voters, or candidates from one year to two years. Well, President Biden issued an executive order granting Medicaid funding to pay for interstate travel for abortion. The president signed the executive order yesterday. It will allow Medicaid funds to be used to facilitate travel for women seeking abortions in states where the procedure is still legal, likely violating the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits the federal financing of abortions. So there will be a standoff on that issue in the coming days. Let's see here. An Iowa school district is being sued by parents for student gender transition plans not involving parents or guardians. The examiner, Washington Examiner, reports that a parent activist organization has filed the federal lawsuit against an Iowa school district over its policy of facilitating gender transitions for students without parental notice or approval. Parents Defending Education sued Linmar Community School District near Cedar Rapids, Iowa, in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Iowa, claiming the district's policy for establishing a gender support plan violates legally protected parental rights and the First and Fourteenth Amendments to the Constitution. The policy in question, enacted by the Linmar School District in April, requires schools to create a gender support plan when a student claims they no longer identify with their biological sex and wish to adopt a new gender identity. According to the lawsuit, the support plan must be formulated without any knowledge or input from the child's parents and, when implemented, requires all school staff and students to address the student in question by their preferred name or pronoun. The lawsuit says the plan means school officials will edit schools' uh, students' names on official documents, allow students to use bathrooms and locker room facilities, and participate in athletics based on their chosen identity. Also, the lawsuit alleges that the policy actually prohibits school officials from disclosing a gender support plan to the student's parents, even when the parents ask if one exists for their child. The brave new world we live in. The U.S. Senate has green-lighted Finland and Sweden's NATO membership. On Wednesday, the U.S. Senate voted to approve Finland and Sweden's request for membership to NATO. The vote passed 95 to 1. Two-thirds of the Senate is needed to ratify the treaty agreement. The president will submit the decision to NATO, joining 20 other NATO countries that have already given their approval. The six remaining NATO countries will need to approve before Sweden and Finland can be accepted. The treaty requires unanimous consensus from all members countries before any new member can enter NATO. The lone senator to vote against Sweden and Finland joining NATO was Josh Hawley, who contended that the U.S. must be more focused on its uh, biggest geopolitical foe. 
U.S. resources are not unlimited, he said. Already we spent the better part of a trillion dollars a year on defense, and our manpower is already stretched thin across the globe. The United States must prioritize the defense resources we have for the China effort while there is still time. Until our European allies make the necessary commitments to their own national defense, we must not put more American lives at risk in Europe while allowing China's power to grow unchecked. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell He rejected Hawley's characterization, noting that having Finland and Sweden as part of NATO would improve burden sharing across the alliance and it would help uh, his help us rather counter Russia and China. Meanwhile, Republicans introduced a bill to prevent Chinese communists from buying American land, particularly farmland, protecting life at all stages. Georgia adopted policies to support pregnant women and foster kids. The San Francisco D.A. revoked dozens of plea deals made by her woke predecessor, cracking down on drug dealers and summer gasoline demand in the inflation saturated U.S. Excuse me. The what is it? The. um, What's the new name for that? It's not uh, it's vibeflation vibeflation. So summer gasoline demand in the vibeflation saturated U.S. drops below pandemic levels. It's just weird, and it's sort of ethereal, according to the writer. Well, on this day in history, 1790, the U.S. Coast Guard has its beginnings as President George Washington signs a measure authorizing a group of revenue cutters to enforce tariff and trade laws and prevent smuggling. 1830, plans for the city of Chicago are laid out. Wouldn't they be surprised at Chicago today? Both pleasantly and not so much. 1936, Jesse Owens wins the second of his four gold medals for the United States at the Berlin Olympics as he prevails in the long jump over German Lose Long, who is the first to congratulate him. And they were lifelong friends following that Olympic game. 1944, Anne Frank is arrested with her sister, parents and four others by the Gestapo after hiding for two years inside a building in Amsterdam. Anne and her sister, Margot, would die at the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. 1964, the bodies of missing civil rights worker Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, and James Cheney are found buried in an earthen dam in Mississippi. 1977, President Jimmy Carter signs a measure establishing the Department of Energy. 1997, Teamsters go on a 15-day strike against United Parcel Service after talks break down with the nation's largest package delivery service. 2009, Northern Korea leader Kim Jong-il pardons American journalists Laura Ling and Yuna Lee for entering the country illegally and ordering their release during a surprise visit by former President Bill Clinton. Well, coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll continue our march through some of the headline news and we'll feature a conversation with Jack Eason, author of The Loneliness Solution, Finding Meaningful Connection in a Disconnected World. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, a conversation I had with Jack Eason. He's the author of The Loneliness Solution, Finding Meaningful Connection in a Disconnected World. I was listening to some banter earlier today about how people are more annoyed with one another having come back from the pandemic where we were isolated and people are having a hard time being in close proximity with their coworkers. Uh, we have been disconnected. Uh, coming back to meaningful connection is something of a challenge. So anyway, we'll talk with Jack Eason about that very challenge.
By the way, the most annoying habit that they cited in a recent study in this same vein was people uh, chewing with their eating with their mouth open. That was the most belching was another. But those were the two that and uh, I think the third was uh, talking on your phone while engaging with other people. So just so you won't be on that list, I wanted to (laughs) to mention those couple of things. Well, uh, returning to some headline news, China today conducted its largest ever live fire missile exercises off the shores of Taiwan, moving into Japanese waters as well. This was one day after uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi concluded her uh, diplomatic visit that became somewhat controversial. Well, the missiles landed in the uh, Taiwan Strait to the islands north, south and east, and the first such drill since 1996, and it escalated China's antagonism toward Taiwan. Uh, Reuters reported, as has everyone else, observing uh, what's going on there. Well, China's Eastern Theater Command confirmed Thursday afternoon, local time, that it had tested multiple missiles off the eastern coast of Taiwan. Announced on Tuesday, the military demonstrations and trainings will occur in six different zones in the waters and airspace surrounding Taiwan rather, until noon on Sunday. This is a quote from China. Taiwan's defense ministry announced that 11 Chinese Dongfeng missiles, uh, ballistic missiles, have been fired in the waters around the island. China's actions threaten free air and sea navigation, infringe on Taiwan's territorial rights and violate United Nations rules, Taiwanese officials said. Their ruling Democratic Progressive Party called it irresponsible, illegitimate behavior. Now, this is a show of force a show of intention on the part of the Chinese uh, Communist Party and uh, a test perhaps to see if any international body would speak out publicly against it. Well, denouncing the drills, Taiwan cabinet spokesman added that the websites of the defense ministry, the foreign ministry and the presidential office experienced hacking attacks as well. Over the last couple of days, over 20 Chinese jets crossed the Taiwan Strait median line, ventured into Taiwan's air defense zone, prompting the island to prepare its own planes to potentially fend off the encroachment. So this could escalate rather quickly out of control. Uh, They flew in, then they flew out again and again. They continued to harass us, the Taiwanese source said, speaking to Reuters. Well, on Thursday morning, Chinese Navy ships, military aircraft crossed the median line several times. The Taiwanese source informed Reuters of as well. Uh, China's provocation comes, of course, after Speaker Pelosi made a trip to Taiwan during a congressional delegation tour. Uh, The trip, which was uh, not included on the official itinerary, was meant to reaffirm U.S. solidarity and its ironclad commitment to the security of the island and also perhaps secure the legacy of of Speaker Pelosi, who may not be the speaker after the midterm elections. Well, the House Speaker met with the uh, Taiwanese president during that stop. China's Communist Party warned of possible military consequences in the event that she didn't cancel when the foreign ministry uh, spokesperson Zhao Lijiang threatened that China would take determined and forceful measures to firmly safeguard national sovereignty and territorial integrity, end quote. They had at one point threatened to shoot her plane down if uh, she was accompanied, as is always the case when uh, dignitaries from the U.S. travel by military vessels. Well, China's officials said Pelosi's visit was reckless and inappropriate, with Foreign Ministry Wang Yi calling it a manic, irresponsible and highly irrational act by the United States, something of a gross overstatement. But they saw it as a provocation. Our punishment of pro-Taiwan independence diehards, external forces is reasonable, lawful, China's Beijing-based Taiwan Affairs Office said. External forces, reasonable, 
and lawful. Well, despite the uh, show of support by Pelosi, National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby clarified on Monday that the U.S. does not support Taiwan independence and that the U.S. one China, uh, China policy um, by which the it recognizes the People's Republic of China as the sole government of China has not changed. So is the U.S. kowtowing to China? Has the president spoken uh, to any of the uh, activities of the Chinese military since the speaker's return? No. And some see this as a missed opportunity. In fact, rather than talking about the possible outcome and the fallout of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, you might want to roll our sleeves up and look at the opportunity lost to send a strong signal to Beijing. That's according to James Carafano writing on uh, the missed opportunity uh, that was lost. Pelosi's stopover in Taiwan, he writes, on her congressional jaunt to Asia generated no small amount of controversy and confusion. Of course, there's absolutely no reason why members of Congress should not visit Taiwan. U.S. officials have every right to go to the island. Further, it's looking pretty clear that the California Democrats' visit to Taipei isn't going to start World War III. Still, the fact is, it was just a visit. The impact will be ephemeral. The story likely will fade here in days. Indeed, the Chinese seem to have enjoyed the opportunity to bully and rail at the U.S. After all, what the Chinese really pay attention to is what we do, not what we say. It's worth asking why we were... Uh, going to bother Beijing anyway, President Joe Biden and his administration didn't do something more impactful. Think about it. China is America's number one challenge in the world. The communist regime in China is the greatest danger to the United States. The boys in Beijing really want a world without America. The threats posed by Russia and Iran are significant, where they exacerbate the danger posed by China. The United States should have a decisive strategy that protects America from the threat of China. So one would think that every step America takes in dealing with the People's Republic of China would be clearly thought out, meticulously planned and intended to set the stage for further action. The way that one chess move prepares the way for others that lead eventually to checkmate. That is not what happened here. The back and forth between the House Speaker and the White House looked like a scene out of a Keystone Cops movie short. The administration floundered to find the right talking points. The president sounded like a little child being schooled by a teacher when he talked to the most powerful person in Beijing, the head of the Communist Party. In the recent exchange between General Secretary Xi Jinping and the President of the United States on the conference call, Xi laid down the law, saying that if the U.S. plays with fire, referring to Taiwan, it will be burned. In contrast, the White House readout indicates that Biden responded with the perfunctory citations of America's one China policy. Such a statement is clearly both insufficient and ineffective. The president's weakness on this call is of a piece with a general weakening of his administration's approach to China over the past 12 months. Of all the places for a hazard, a haphazard engagement with Beijing, a dispute over Taiwan is worst. Uh, Taiwan is important to U.S. interests, not because it is a democracy or makes computer chips, but because Taiwan holds a crucial strategic location in the first island chain. If communist China controls Taiwan, the U.S. would be denied access to one of the most important lanes of air and sea travel, commerce and communication in the Indo-Pacific. China's nuclear armed submarines would have a sanctuary, making them immune to U.S. Navy. This would be a catastrophic blow to the U.S. as Asia and a world power. Well, the freedom and security of Taiwan is deadly serious business. It deserves far more than a messy news cycle that uh, left U.S. policymaking amateur hour look like the Super Bowl. 
The administration was clearly off its game here. Not surprisingly, it has been stumbling over foreign policy since the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Don't be surprised if missed opportunities and missteps like this don't become more the norm than the exception. Sadly, if we learned anything from Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, it is that we need a far better, more focused and proactive foreign policy. By the way, the United States ran a merchandise trade deficit of 200 and of 200 billion dollars with the People's Republic of China in the first six months of this year. That's according to data released today by the Census Bureau. That was the largest trade deficit in the United States ran with any um, country in the January through June period. The second largest trade deficit the United States ran in the first half of this year was with Mexico. But that bilateral trade deficit was 63 billion less than one-third of the size of the trade deficit with China. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break? When we return, a conversation with Jack Eason, author of The Loneliness Solution, Finding Meaningful Connection in a Disconnected World. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as promised, we're going to talk with my next guest, Jack Eason, in just a moment. But to to speak of his book, The Loneliness Solution, despite our connected world, and we are connected to one another, perhaps now in ways uh, using technology that we never imagined, and partly because of that connection, we're lonelier than ever. Social media tricks us into thinking that we're engaged in genuine friendship, yet instead of intimacy, we get little more than what amounts to digital small talk. But there is a solution, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, in his book, The Loneliness Solution, Finding Meaningful Connection in a Disconnected World, Executive Director of Crossover Cups Mission, and a pastoral consultant, Jack Eason. He shares practical advice as he invites readers to discover the benefits of doing life together with other brothers and sisters in Christ. After all, that's what we're called to do. Grounding his message in scripture, he helps us learn about the obstacles to real community, how to reimagine what real friendship looks like, and to discover a place of belonging. Well, Jack Eason has been the executive director of Crossover Cups Mission for 30 years. He also consults with a variety of nonprofit ministries, helping them develop successful approaches to fundraising and development. Jack Eason, we are so delighted to have you with us. Welcome. Hey, Georgine. It's great to be with you today. Thank you so much. You know, I've been reading about loneliness prior to this pandemic, and the word epidemic was being applied, that there is a wave of loneliness uh, in our culture uh, that people are experiencing in ways that we've never seen before. The loneliness solution addresses that. Why are people so lonely today when we have uh, the opportunity to travel from one location to another in a matter of moments? We have access to technology that connects us in some ways. Why is it that we're so lonely? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I mean, we can we can even communicate with people uh, on other planets, you know, with NASA yeah. and everything. They go to the moon and we can talk back and forth. Technology is amazing. Uh, but you're right. We are in an epidemic and uh, we're, we were in one uh, with loneliness long before uh, the pandemic of COVID-19 came on the scene. Perhaps it's even more uh, highlighted and heightened and the spotlight is on loneliness now because of what we've been enduring the last eight months. But, you know, I, I think we have really redefined to some degree now uh, what, for example, what friendship is. 
I mean, you know, uh, probably when you and I grew up, uh, I, I know when I grew up, there was not the technology that we have now. I actually had to go outside, uh, go physically <laughs> play with the, the kids down the street that I wanted to play with. Now we, we, we define friendship. Well, I can I can add or subtract friends with a mouse click right on social media. So we really have redefined what friendship is all about. And um, I think to overcome this loneliness issue, that's going to be one of the first steps is to help people understand uh, social media is not all bad. But it maybe has given us a false reality of what social of what friendship is about. I mean, I have three thousand plus Facebook friends, but honestly, some of them I, I don't even know. And if, if I had something <laughs> happen at two a.m. at my house and needed uh, you know had an emergency and needed help, maybe six of those would actually show up to help me. So you know, we've got to really get back to figuring out what real friendship is. Well, how do you define loneliness versus being alone? A lot of us right now are alone. Um, but loneliness is something different. Explain the distinction between the two. Yeah, I, I like to be uh, actually like to be alone. I, I don't know if you do, Georgine. I know you're with a lot of people and, and with your radio show. I'm with a lot of people at churches and different places and speaking. And and sometimes I'm just like, OK, I, I, I'm done. I have no more energy <laughs> for anyone else. I want to be alone. And so that's not a bad thing when we choose to be alone. But loneliness is different. I mean, you can be lonely and be in a group of people. Mm -hmm. It's this overwhelming feeling when I was doing some research and asking different questions of all age groups, but especially those who are like 18 to 30. Many of them would say, I'm lonely and I feel like I'm in a sea and I'm drowning or I'm trapped inside a cardboard box and I can't get out. It's this overwhelming feeling of not being able to connect. Despite, again, as you mentioned earlier, all the ways that we might look and appear that we're connected. Um it's this feeling of just uh, really a lack of, of real, genuine friendship and connectivity. Is it because we misunderstand what real friendship and connectivity is or that there are so many distractions that we've settled for something other than the genuine, heartfelt, deep connections that we mm. are called to have and desperately need? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's both. I, I think our culture has kind of pushed us away from real connection. And again, uh, someone uh, said to me, maybe we have traded the false shrines of Twitter and Instagram for real friendship. And in some respects, I think they're right. Again, uh, social media is not all bad. We're surviving a lot of us with technology and social media mm-hmm. right now because of the pandemic. But it has created this false sense of what friendship is about. And, and I think, too, technology and just our society. Uh, I, I uh, A couple of months ago, I left home. I, I went to get some food, dry cleaning, the bank, a couple other places. I never got out from behind the steering wheel. I was able to do that all from the comfort of my car. And I got back home and I thought, you know, I miss walking into those establishments and maybe having a meaningful conversation because I'm so busy. And uh, technology has sped things up for us. And so we sometimes equate uh, the speediness of life with progress. <laughs> I'm really starting to ask myself, have we really, are we really making progress? Are we going backwards? Because when it comes to building relationships, um, uh, you've heard this before, I'm sure. It, you, you spell love, T-I-M-E time. And if if we're all so busy that we have not left buffer of time and margin of time in our lives, then we're not going to build the kind of relationships that God intended for us to build. I know we are designed and built to be in relationship with others. And yet our culture today makes that uh, more of a challenge for us. What do you think some of the obstacles are that keep us from the kind of friendship that I think all of us, when we're honest, long for, but seldom find? 
Well, I, I think, again, social media, I think busyness, I think something that I've seen just in the last year, especially, and, uh, you know, whether it's the pandemic or politics, uh, I think we have maybe even over the last decade in, in our attempt to give people validity, we have created these names of groups. Uh, and so we have actually divided ourselves and mm-hmm. we put the spotlight on what makes us different instead of what makes us similar. What makes us similar is we're created in the image of God. We are the human race. Um, and those differences are important. But I think we have put the spotlight so much on the differences. People feel like, well, I can't connect to that person. I have nothing in common with that person. And, and the reality is that that may somewhat be true. But it's the diversity, especially of the body of Christ, that makes us uh, be better together and stronger together is that the diversity. But if we don't highlight the fact that we do have things in common, I think that's uh, that is a great obstacle to friendship. Again, we've redefined friendship a lot um, uh, with culture and social media. Our busyness has, has pushed us away from real relationships. Here's the other thing I think, too, I, I've discovered, especially with the younger folks. Um, and, and again, all this ties together is a, a really a lack of wanting to invest what it takes Mm-hmm. to to really have real friendship community. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. He's in his mid-20s, and and um, he has been trying to find community and really a faith community. And uh, he said, you know, I, I just give up. I, I've been there, done that, kind of got the T-shirt. I don't need to do that anymore. And I said, well, have you have you really tried? Yeah, and, he, and he's maybe gone to a couple of different faith communities, churches. And I said, have you ever gone to a restaurant where you had bad service? And he said, well, of course, of course. I said, did you cease ever going out to eat again? And he's like, well, no, no, of course not. I said, well, that's kind of how it is building community. You, you have to work at it. I mean, whether it's friendship, whether it's marriage, I'm getting ready to celebrate 24 years of marriage. And I can tell you, if you ask my wife, she would say, oh my goodness, talk about investment, talk about time and trying over and over again to, to get through my thick skull. Sometimes. Uh, it takes time and effort. And it's amazing to me, really, especially that age group, and we're all guilty. I'm guilty of it, too. We're willing to invest when it comes to like to learning a musical instrument. We're learning. Uh, we're willing to invest if it comes to like getting in shape. We go to the gym. We work out. We're willing to invest learning a language or a skill or a hobby. But then we think friendship should just be instantaneous. And it's not. It requires work. It requires effort. And I think that is a big obstacle that me- mentally we have to overcome and realize those are some things we've got to do to have real uh, authentic relationships. We're talking this afternoon with Jack Eason. He's the author of The Loneliness Solution, the subtitle of the book. We'll get to that in our next segment, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. I'm Georgine Rice. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Jack Eason. He's the author of The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. The book is published by Ravel. Now, let me ask you, what do we miss out on when we do not have the kind of connection that we're designed for? If we don't develop friendships, if we don't have one or two people that we truly connect with, what's um, what's at stake and what do we lose? Because I think some of us need to be convinced that there's something deeper available for us than what we currently have in our current cultural form. Wow, that's, that is so good, Georgine, you're right. And, and I think we miss on ultimately the kind of connectivity uh, God wants for us that will help us grow. 
Um, because uh, as much as I want to think personally, I'm all that and I have all the pieces of every personality trait and gift and skill that I need. I, I don't. I don't. And it's much like, you know, a sports team. There are different people who have different positions. The Bible says it this way, that we each have different gifts as a part of the body. And that's the way God made us. I, I think it was actually intentional. <laughs> I think God did that. So we would have to depend on one another. So this power of community is is really what's at stake. It's doing life with other people. And uh, it's it's having your needs met. It's having people pray with you and and reach out to you and meet your needs. We, we had um, a Bible study group for about three years, Georgine, in our home. We just stopped a few uh, months ago, and we'll start back up probably soon. But uh, we had a family in that group, and they, as we got to know them, because they were plugged into community, uh, we just we found out that he had served in the military. He had been in Afghanistan. There's some biological, chemical warfare things happen. He was really struggling because of that to hold down a job. And uh, we found out that they were about he and his wife, who was a homemaker. They had four kids. Uh, they were about to be evicted out of their home. And so uh, over a series of weeks, kind of behind the scenes, about about 20 of us, about 10 couples started taking up some money and they came the next Sunday evening. And and before we got started, we just said one of the members of our group handed them this basket of, of cash and there was checks. And some people gave a little bit. Some people gave a lot. It was interesting how how people just did what they could do, but it all added together to make a big impact. And I'll never forget as he was handed this basket of cash, he started he started weeping and he just said, why, why are you guys doing this? And before me, Mr. Mr. Pastor guy could come up with a profound answer. Somebody in our group said, because that's what family does. Hmm. That's what family does. And I thought, wow, that is exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think a lot of people are missing that kind of, you know, what the early church experienced in Acts, the, the family atmosphere, which is what the body of Christ is and should be for us. And so what's at stake? You're missing out on that if you're not plugged into that. People meeting your needs, you being able to meet someone else's needs, which is just as great as having yes. your own needs met, because it's more blessed to give than to receive. So that, that relationship, that back and forth relationship, you're missing that if you're not plugged into community. And you may say, oh, man, that's really that's really hard. It's difficult to find community. Yes, you're right. It is. But keep trying, because when you find it, you'll go, oh, my goodness, this is what I was wired for, made for, and how God is going to use it to help me grow, become the man or woman of God that I need to be. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the subtitle of your book is Finding Meaningful Connection in a Disconnected World. Give us some creative ideas to help build friendships in a society like ours that doesn't make it uh, the easiest thing to do. Yeah, I think, you know, especially during the, what we've been experiencing together uh, the last eight months as a, as a world, really, especially as a country um, as well, there's some creative things that we can do. A, a lot of them are digital. Again, as I mentioned, social media and technology is not all bad. Uh, I, I think one that you can do uh, right now, a lot of people are looking to get outside because of some of the restrictions, um, is, is volunteering. We had, for example, in our area a few months ago, we had a, a storm come through, blew down some big trees uh, in, in a neighborhood. And we found out that it was a, an elderly woman's uh, home and uh, somebody put out a good use of social media. They put out on social media to this neighborhood association, a Facebook group. Hey, this has happened. This lady's got some trees down. Uh, she has to have a service People come in and clean it up. We're probably looking at a few thousand dollars, which she probably can't afford. Uh, if you got a chainsaw and you like to cut up wood, meet us down there Saturday morning at eight. 
So I go down. I get down there, Georgine. There's like 15, 16 guys with chainsaws. <laughs> didn't know each other, a lot of them. They're going crazy. Clean this yard up. And, uh, and I'm looking around going, wow, this is the power of connectivity, of community. And uh, some of those folks are still getting together now after that that, that met each other uh, with a chainsaw in their hand, helping someone they didn't, didn't even know. <laughs> yeah. So there's some creative things that we can do. It just requires us to, to open our eyes and look because God will provide those opportunities. And uh, volunteering, again, is a great way uh, to get out of the rut that you may find yourself in. Mm, that's so good. Now, you... Um uh, point out, uh, you write that we need to be willing to invest. You used that word earlier as you were relating to your uh, your marriage. And by the way, happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> um, what does it look like? A real community and connection that we, we long for and that I believe God provides opportunity for, for all of us, if we're willing to make that investment as you describe it. Well, and, and that's the key word is investment. And we really have to be willing to do it. And, um, you know, the, the, the result, the, the fruit of that is just so good. Uh, and, and again, it's a God idea. I, when I was doing research for this book, um, I, I really wanted to write about the power of community and the power of being together. And then as I started researching, I'm like, well, we're, we're not even together. It looks like we're together, but we're not. And what I discovered, and it was a quote from a guy, I think his name is Drew Hunter. And he said uh, the, the, the first problem for man was not uh, was not sin. And I'm thinking, OK. Georgine, I'm thinking, who's this heretic? I got to I got to find out who this guy is. How can he say that? But I started researching and he said, go back and read Genesis again. And you'll discover that the first problem was loneliness because God said to Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. So I will create a companion for him. So this idea is from the very beginning of creation. And it's so important. And if you'll be willing to make an investment, I, I think what's happened with our culture as we have become, uh, and this is another, uh, not my idea, but another idea I came across, uh, we become so dismembered, so mm. dismembered. I, I, you know, I've got two kids in college and I'm paying for car insurance and there's this thing in the insurance policy, policy that says accidental death and dismemberment. And that's kind of what's happened as the body of Christ. We've become so dismembered. And so what I, w- I would encourage you to, especially if you know Christ, to remember Remember, rejoin the body of Christ because we won't be effective on our own. God made us dependent on one another, and uh, it is a God idea, and it's the way that we can best function to not only bring him glory, but to find our ultimate purpose for living is found in that kind of relationship. One of the things that keeps us from connecting meaningfully with others is the absence of trust. We're fearful of being known Mm -hmm. and we're desperate to be known. Can you talk about uh, trust and how we can deal with that fear as we seek genuine community and friendship? Yeah, I I was listening to an interview. uh, Gosh, it's probably been five or six years ago uh, from the guys who co-founded Airbnb. And I'm listening to them talk and and Georgie and I was just I was mesmerized because their first statement was, hey, we didn't start Airbnb to make money. So I'm thinking, okay, well, what's what what did you why did you start this thing? (laughs) Yeah. What were you Uh, thinking? (laughs) What were you thinking? And they said we started Airbnb because we wanted to build community. And we we knew if we built a community that the money would follow, it would become a marketplace. But our heart was really to build community. But they said what the challenge was, was this idea of staying in strangers' homes, uh, you know, or condos or apartments or whatever was was very foreign to culture, much like uh, when Amazon got started and, and Uber and, and uh, you know, I've done Amazon. My wife especially has done Amazon a lot online, buying online and Uber <laughs> and all those things. Um, and so they said we knew that what we were talking about was different and new, too. So we were going to have to get people accustomed to it. 
And so they said, we put a lot of things in place to help people be, be comfortable and, and to build trust, to build this community. And so I'm listening. And then they made this statement. They said, if we just wanted to build a marketplace and make money, then money is the currency of, of transactions, but trust is the currency of interactions. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that wow. is so good. That's so good. They said, we don't want this just to be a transactional thing. We want it to be an interaction. And, and I think really for us, especially, again, in the body of Christ, we've got to get back to real genuine friendship comes from care and concern for people. And we sometimes let culture get us so busy. Again, no buff in our lives. We're running on to the next thing. You see somebody at church. How you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. You keep on walking. We both know neither one of them are fine. But we just keep plodding along and we've got to really um, have that caring concern. And when we do, then trust will follow. I, I know a lot of the millennials, Gen Z, you know, tell me, hey, we're really struggling with this whole trust thing because they're, hey, let's be honest, their trust has been breached. My trust has been breached by friends. My trust has even been breached. Oh, dare I say it? Yes, it's true. By the church because we're flawed people. But just because our trust has been breached doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We get more intentional about finding the kind of community God wants us to have, and we might be a little more guarded. We, we, we try to operate smartly with our relationships, uh, and we plot on because, again, at the end of the day, this kind of community is what God uh, wants to use to help us grow and become uh, the kind of people he wants us to become. Absolutely. Well, once again, the book is titled The Loneliness Solution, Finding Connection in a Disconnected World. Very timely, very relevant. And I hope you'll pick it up, not just to um, consider how to navigate this pandemic, but to consider how to navigate in life with strong, deep connections and in community. Jack Eason, it's always a delight to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, Georgine, thank you. And, and I do want to encourage people, whether they get the book or not, there's tons of resources online to check out that can help you with your small group or your church group. And uh, let's all get the loneliness solution, which is the relationship that we need with Christ and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Thanks, Jack Eason. Thank you. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. You know, with everything that's going on in the world, I found it rather interesting that Jackson Clark and uh, James DePine uh, chose to write about one of the challenges the United States faces that we don't really think about or talk about much. And they were talking about the failure to prioritize the Arctic and the fact that it's left America vulnerable to our adversaries. Now, you wonder, now, who are our adversaries there? And we're continuing a look at the People's Republic of China and the role they might play. Well, the Arctic is a critically important region to the U.S. because of its trade routes and natural resources. America is unable, however, to protect its interests there against increasingly aggressive and better equipped adversaries. Uh, they write, if left unopposed, countries such as Russia and China will continue to exert their influence in the region and could wrest control of trade through new routes or even exploit resources in U.S. waters. Now, something that hadn't occurred to me, but perhaps should be thinking about. The Arctic consists of the Arctic Ocean and parts of the United States, Canada, Europe and Russia. The U.S. has fallen behind in Arctic capabilities. And the best way of fixing that is a new fleet of icebreakers, ships that are essential to operate in the waters of both poles where other ships struggle with the ice. Well, icebreakers are specially purpose ships designed to break through ice in harsh environments. They give access to polar regions and perform tasks that normal ships cannot. 
So is this a big deal? Well, the news, uh, new U.S. Coast Guard com- uh, Commandant Linda Fagan stressed the importance of building new icebreakers uh, to lawmakers at a congressional hearing earlier this month. She described Arctic conditions as changing and giving a new way to navigate routes as Arctic ice melts. One of these routes is the Northern Sea Route, which has become a more um, viable shipping lane in recent years. The U.S. hasn't deployed any new polar icebreakers since 1999. And while our ships increasingly suffer from mechanical failures and overextension, our nation's adversaries continue to grow their influence in the Arctic. Well, the Coast Guard plans to acquire three heavy icebreakers and eventually three medium icebreakers over the next 15 years. The first of these polar security cutters commenced uh, construction this year with a ship not expected to be delivered until 2025. Meanwhile, China has been heavily investing in its Arctic icebreaker fleet for the first two decades and now has its eyes set on becoming an Arctic power. So is our rear flank being uh, completely ignored? Well, China considers it, it considers itself a near Arctic state, despite its uh, closest land connection to the region being over 900 nautical miles away. But they have uh, spent considerable resources expanding the influence in the Arctic region by building research installations, trading through Arctic waters and growing relationships with Arctic states. Well, China's ultimate goal is to pave its polar silk road which will take advantage of the new shipping routes and minerals becoming more available because of ice melts and other changing conditions. Well, China currently has two polar-capable icebreakers that it uses for its research and supply missions in the Arctic Sea. And the icebreaking fleet it's, um, is getting larger and more modern with a nuclear-powered icebreaker and Arctic supply vessel in development long before 2025. Well, China isn't the only threat to U.S. interests in the Arctic. Russia currently fields the world's largest icebreaker fleet with over 40 vessels in active service. And Russia has more icebreakers um, planned for construction in the next decade, including Project 2350, um, 23550, a polar-capable patrol ship armed with anti-ship weaponry. Well, Russia is preparing for more Arctic shipping uh, routes becoming viable and maintaining Russian Arctic sovereignty through the uh, threat of military force in those areas. Well, the situation is far more dire to uh, for U.S. icebreakers. The U.S. Uh, fleet has become inadequate, can't protect U.S. Arctic waters. Coast Guard icebreakers perform similar missions as their Coast Guard ships, like enforcing U.S. laws, protecting resources, collecting intelligence, while having the added capacity to work in waters where other ships can't go. Well, the Coast Guard currently operates two polar-capable icebreakers, two, a heavy polar icebreaker, a polar star, and a medium polar icebreaker, Healy. Well, both ships are aging rapidly. They require extensive maintenance in port after every deployment at sea. The polar star has been in commission for over four decades and has greatly extended its intended service life. The ship's limited time at sea is tied up in an annual supply run. Uh, then it limps back to dry dock after each uh, expedition and has required enough um, uh, repairs for the next uh, supply trip the following year. The Healy was commissioned in 99. It's now showing its wear after two decades, uh, rather over two decades of active service. After an electrical fire during an Arctic mission in 2020 left the ship incapacitated for over a year, the U.S. has no active icebreaker at sea. Well, the threats are mounting and U.S. icebreakers are um, 
unsuited for year-round Arctic operations. And with a growing focus on the natural resources and shipping there, the U.S. has to act to preserve its interest in the Arctic region. In order to counter these threats, the Coast Guard has to ensure the delivery of the newly designed polar security class cutters as soon as possible. But soon as possible isn't really soon enough. In fiscal year 2023, $13.8 billion budget request uh, includes purchasing and modifying a commercial icebreaker as a bridging uh, strategy while they're in the process of developing others. And while Band-Aid measures uh, like acquiring a commercial icebreaker can help, the U.S. needs to get serious about building new icebreakers. It needs a fleet. So as we're looking uh, to China and Russia in their own territories, in our own backyard, there are serious concerns about whether or not we are prepared uh, to engage in the 21st century. How much was that sand got to? Okay. Uh, One other thing, the Biden administration has approved a sale of Patriot missiles and support equipment to Saudi Arabia, overriding prior campaign pledges to end arms transfers to the pariah country, as the candidate Biden once said, over human rights issues. Well, the president notified Congress that three billion dollar sale on Tuesday, the day after a Saudi led coalition in Yemen, vowed to extend a U.N. brokered ceasefire with the Houthi rebel group for two months, according to CNN. Well, Saudi Arabia has been accused of striking civilian targets, contributing to one of the world's worst humanitarian crises, leading Biden in 2019 to denounce the country's human rights practice and vow to suspend arms transfers that support offensive uh, Saudi campaigns. Well, he previously promised to make Saudi Arabia pay the price for killing journalist Jamal Khashoggi and make them the pariah that they are. And those are direct quotes. Well, the announcement also came just before Saudi Arabia committed to a relatively small increase in oil production at the OPEC plus meeting on Wednesday. Uh, the president traveled there, you might recall, earlier in July in a reported attempt to persuade Saudi Arabia and other oil rich countries in the region to increase output. The administration uh, deals with soaring energy prices and plummeting domestic uh, approval ratings and um, undermining the production of uh, oil and other uh, resources here at home. So the president agreeing to sell missiles to pariah, as he called it, Saudi Arabia, in a uh, certainly a complete turnaround from campaign promises. Well, we are out of time. Tomorrow we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news as well as this week's Christian Outlook. So I hope you will join us. In the meantime, I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.